Hi, this is India, and you're listening to Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. This podcast highlights the personal and professional journeys African descendants take daily as they navigate the world around them. Episodes feature topics and conversations with guests that are timely and intelligent while still being funny and cool. If you enjoy listening to Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness, be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are an Apple Podcast user, be sure to leave a review. You may also email us at journeys, B as in black, the number two, B as in beautiful, at gmail.com. You may also follow Journeys of Belonging to Blackness on Facebook and YouTube. Really excited about the episode you're about to listen to. So now let's get into it. Joining us today is internationally renowned jazz musician, Masauko Chippenberry. Masauko is the son of a Malawian freedom fighters and political nationalist, Henry Masauko Chippenberry and Catherine Chippenberry, who are best known as the architects of Malawian independence from colonial rule back in 1964. Masauko is one half of the duo Black Sunshine with South African musician Neo Muyanga, who dropped their first album in 1998, also titled Black Sunshine, that fuses hip hop, jazz, and folk with Southern African traditions. The duo Black Sunshine and their first album experienced much success, charting in the South African top 20 for 20 weeks, reaching position number six on the charts. The first single from the album, Building, went to number one on South African radio in 2001. Black Sunshine's second studio album, Good Life, was recorded internationally and released in 2009. Masauko has collaborated and or performed with the likes of Mary J. Blige, Ishmael Lowe, Take Six, Talib Kweli, Black Thought from The Roots, The Rizza from Wu-Tang Clan, and Stanley Jordan. Performed in a tribute concert for Archbishop Desmond Tutu, which also featured Stevie Wonder, and even had the honor of singing for his idol, Miriam Makiba. This summer, Masauko released his solo album, self-titled Masauko, which has already received rave reviews. When he's not busy working in the studio on various projects, hosting his weekly radio show called Connections with Masauko on 95.5 FM Jazz Costa Rica Radio and performing worldwide, Masauko travels to Malawi to support his mother, Catherine's NGO called Win Malawi, which focuses on permaculture and other sustainable technologies for rural communities in Malawi. Still, Yet more, he finds the time to work with the next generation and upcoming Malawian musicians, trying to help them develop the standards of their music to attract international markets. Welcome, Masauko. What up, India? <laughs> I'm so excited to have you on this podcast. You just have no idea. I am truly a fan of your work and always wanted to learn more about your journey as a musician, especially knowing a bit about your family history, your parents being freedom fighters back in Malawi and, and your upbringing and how that must have, must have informed your activism, your social justice work. 
And um, plus, you just have such a kind and gentle and humble spirit about you. And your I don't music see is... myself as humble. Really? <laughs> I'm, a bit, I'm a bit cocky, to be honest. People know uh -oh, that. Uh -oh. I'm not going to lie. We're not going to lie. <laughs> You're yeah. like, what's that humble stuff? Um, but really, your music is beautiful and meaningful. And Thank so, you. That's important to me. No, no. And, and, and I really wanted to use the platform of the show um, today because I think there's just so much that's even in the lyrics and even just your process and your journey, um, being who you are and the work that you put forth and contribute to us out there in the world that um, it's worth discussing and sharing with others. Thank you. And so I particularly enjoy speaking to individuals like yourself um, who really seem so grounded, maybe not as humble as I thought, <laughs> um, but so sure, so unapologetically black and wonder, wow, how did this person get here? And what was their journey like? And why do they do what they do? So I'm interested in not just the stories people tell, but the journey too. So that's why this podcast is called Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Word. I, I talk, I journey, I'm beginning to belong, and I'm black. <laughs> All of the above. So we have a lot of ground to cover. So we'll just segue right into Act One. One, call to adventure. For our listeners, how did you become interested in doing the work you do today? Because you do a lot. Well, to be honest, I'd have to say that most of my direction started with um, what you overhear in the house. You know, like when you're little in a revolutionary home, what you're hearing is, well, you know, your father was going to run for president, but X and Y happened, or um, you, you hear names like Nkrumah, that time when your father, you know, was in prison and Nkrumah sent money to get him out of jail. Um, all of what's happening around you in a Pan-Africanist revolutionary home, see, it, it, it all leaks Pan-Africanism. Mm. So be it that the people coming over to my house would show up from Ghana, they'd show up from Haiti, they'd show up from all of these different places. And in general, all of them brought culture, style, a little music showed up with them. And, um, you know, I guess the music aspect of it always seemed like the lightest part of it, the part of it where everybody became one. And um, <clears throat> I guess, you know, when you're far from home or born into another culture, what you're always seeking is a sense of harmony, not only musical, but like spiritual. And there's a sense of harmony that shows up between human beings, not musical harmony, but social harmony that shows up um, when music shows up. And that's something that I kind of noticed around my household is that even though we were a family running in exile from a revolution, music tended to bring joy and pull us all together. I, I think for our listeners, um, particularly for folks that don't know about you and your family, your your parents came to California in the mid nineteen, the mid or late nineteen sixties, um, and continued their studies. And I think your dad taught at university. And yes, um, yes. but your your parents were um, exiled from Malawi by a dictator at the time called Banda. Yes, in yeah. 1964, Malawi became independent on July 6th, 
um, Kamuzuk Banda became the president of the country. Before the independence struggle, he had been out of the country for about 40 years. So he was a bit estranged from Malawians and Malawian culture. However, my father and the men that were men and women that were leading the revolution at that time were all very young. They were either in their 20s or 30s. So African culture dictated that they needed an elder to lead because no, none of the chiefs, none of the, the common people could imagine having a 30-something-year-old president. So Kamusu Banda was suggested by Kwame Nkrumah and Joma Kenyatta, who uh, Kenyatta was uh, president in uh, Kenya and Kwame Nkrumah was president of independent Ghana, and they were elders to the whole Pan-Africanist movement. So when they suggested Kamusubanda to my father and the other young people around them that were leading the revolution, they, the young people chose to you know, follow their leaders and bring in Kamuzubanda. Little did they know that that would end up being a big problem later because Kamuzu, in many ways, had adopted so much of the Western culture that he was a bit of a foreigner in Malawi. And I know that for your dad, at least from you know what I've read and what I've understood as part of the folklore behind your your family, your parents, um, is that even in your parents' time here, what your dad was also trying to do was um, not only continue with his studies, but he was in the process of writing an autobiography, uh, which was which later came out um, called "Hero of the Nation." Right? Yes. Because in many ways, he was yeah. now considered like the towering founder of the Republic of Malawi, right? Yeah. So what happened is, you know, um, in ex during the exile period, my father was approached by a Harvard professor, um, Robert Rotberg, to, who's also a pretty well-known historian for Southern Africa. He asked my father to document his journey because he felt it may be important for people to to know how he, how this young man had come to be involved in this revolutionary movement and had been part of this whole independence movement, especially because the dictator was taking my father's name out of history very mm. consciously. Um, so in Malawi, between 1964 and 1994, you couldn't mention my father's name. Literally, uh, it the name was so powerful that other people who had the name Masauko were actually jailed just for having that name in Malawi wow. during the period that he was um, in exile. And I mean, when he died in exile and so forth. Banda was replaced. Um, your father was then, his name, his image was rehabilitated as a national hero. Absolutely. That's exactly the way to look at it. In fact, um, what made it so much more powerful is that when he left uh, government in 1964. He had been the Minister of Education. When he left government in his last speech, he said, today, everybody considers me a villain, but history has a way of, of, of changing people's minds over time. And it may be that the heroes of today are the villains of tomorrow, and the villains of today may be one day the heroes in the situation, and it may be long after they're dead, but history has a way of changing these things. And oddly enough, today he's the national hero, and his enemy, who had been, who had, who had tried to make him a devil, who had tried to make my father a devilish person to the Malawians, is now kind of considered, you know, 
a problematic person. So they switched roles. The hero became the villain and the villain became the hero. And that's deep, right? And so I'm just trying to place what it's like, because you started off um, talking about just all the different sort of people that came through your home space, right? As a young child. And, you know, and then having this particular context, right? In terms of, you know, what your parents went through, what that might be like, or must have been like to be in exile, right? Like totally cut off and like where you have a nation, a leader that's shunning you, right? And that's trying to erase you um, from the, the, the public consciousness. And here you are stateside and you yourself said, oh, you know, growing up in a revolutionary home, like, did you realize that that was the home that you were growing up in? Or was it just over time that you realized, oh, there's something unique about my house that's different from my friends? To be dead honest, I knew my house was different from childhood. One, because it was busy. There were seven of us. There was like three or four bedrooms in the house and everybody's kind of piled on top of everyone else. There was always an influx of different people, professors, this, that, the other. And there was a general feeling of nervousness. That was something that you understood too, because while my father was in Los Angeles, other friends of his and comrades were being letter bombed by Kamuzu Banda. So, wow. you know, I have vague memories in my childhood of my father getting really upset at my big brother who would follow him outside as he took envelopes to go open by a tree. And like my brother would be like, what's he doing out there? And as soon as my brother walked out, my father would be like, go back in the house, get, you know, he'd sound very stern. And it was very, what's going on there? And then, you know, you find out years later, he was opening packages that could be letter bombs. So he'd have us in the house. There was a couple of times the car blew up kind of randomly. Yeah, so we were were living in a house that had the tension. You know, my mom explained to me later, like, yeah, all of those people that used to come by the house, those different teachers that come by for coffee, they they were all agents. They were all working for, you know, different departments of the United States in terms of, you know, all the three-letter departments and stuff. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, so I, I felt that tension. And I would also say that music was an escape for me mm. because what I figured out very early on in watching my mother and the energy in my house was that the world would work better if I occupied myself. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, when parents are busy with things like, hey, there are agents in the house, there are people with letter bombs, your your instinct as a child in a way is to go, okay, well, like, I'm going to go over here and put on this record player and get lost in an imaginary world outside of all of this. Mm. However, you're still taking in everything, you know? So your imaginary world includes you know, the villain somewhere named Banda. And, you know, you're playing all of this out. But music, again, allowed me to dream. I was a kid who liked to, I was a kid who liked the dream world more than reality. Mm. So much so, as a child, I was able to make up my own dreams. I could literally close my eyes and do a sequence of blinking sort of movements and create light behind my eyes which would then begin moving and turning into colors. And then after a while, if I zoned out for a while, it actually turned into a dream and I could walk into the dream, literally. Wow. (laughs) This this was so profound 
that I wanted to go to sleep every night as soon as it got dark. And my mom would actually, I remember her as a kid going, you're the only child I've ever had that <laughs> begs me to go to sleep and wants to go to sleep. I don't understand. And I just kind of <laughs> smile at her. But my dream world was more profound than reality for me. Mm, right. and, that, and that's why I'm, a lot of why I'm a musician, right? Because for me, music, sound is the stuff of dreams. I can, I can actually live inside of sound. Wow, that's, that is... That is a wonderful, I, I mean, I can, I can see that when you said that, right? Um, and I've never thought of music in that particular way, right? So on the one hand, you start off talking about the fact that music for you initially was a form of escape, right? Um, a, a meditative space when there's all this other potential chaos that's happening around you, right? And then I kind of think about the fact that being in what you've dubbed as a revolutionary home is akin to what people talk about in terms of looking at the role music played in, say, American or U.S.-based civil rights, right? Absolutely. That, that there's something powerful around the music itself, the lyrics, that it's, you know, because music is emotive as well. It can conjure up emotives, uh, emotions. It can inspire, go you to action, right? It's very yeah. reinforcing. Um, and, but for you, you saw that as a pathway in terms of dreams, right? Which is also yeah. another type of escape, escapism, but then also a processing place for children and people too, right? Mm -hmm. Like even in my adult self, I'll like have a rough night and I'll wake up totally exhausted because I had this vivid dream. But you know, when you dissect it, you realize, oh, could, because I'm processing particular events and emotions that my dream space is what it was like. But for you, that's powerful where you actually see yourself in it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I could make things up and go there. And um, I think that for me, I always understood from childhood to now, that was the best thing about being me, was the ability to make up worlds and go live inside those worlds. And so for me, songs, in a sense, are worlds. You know, yeah. they're, they're dreams. My songs are definitely my dreams. When I say we grow from seed to tree, me and my people building, um, a lot of my dreams as a kid were around trees. That's where like beautiful things would happen and I'd be with people and we'd, we'd bond and it'd be happening under a tree. I only found out years later that my father in Africa had done all of his political meetings under a tree. I guess that, you know, there's things that I, I also believe in cellular memory. Like there's dreams I had that I explained to my mom, hey, I was on this big white ship on this lake and it, it had, you know, and I described it completely and she'd go, I have no idea how you saw that because that's the ship that we, um, that we escaped on. I actually have a song about um, that ship called Ilala on my album. Um, and it's basically, again, that particular song is exactly, I think, it's a quintessential um, Masauko piece because in the song, the song itself is, is completely inside of a dream. If you listen to it, I think you can actually feel that this whole thing feels like water and it feels like dreamlike and you don't have to know what I'm saying. You'll feel the emotionalism of it. So hopefully you can play that tune and people can get a, you know, check out, you know, what that feels like. Yeah, no, definitely. As you're speaking, it's playing. Cool. Um, so, 
I like this idea about placing oneself into the into music as 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 a metaphor around dreams and just how you get to realize it, right? Music can be something quite tangible. Um and 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 I like that manifestation shift, right? Um was there any particular music that really was part of your heart song as you were coming up, um growing up that really sort of motivated you to think, okay, not only am I in a space where I, I like how I feel in it, but I really want to do this, like in real life. <laughs> well, I was always doing it, whether I wanted to or not. I'm not a person that came here with a lot of choice. I was born seventh um, to the son of a revolutionary. I was given that revolutionary's name. The man died two days before my fifth birthday. Mm. And essentially... His mission was dropped off on me. That's what I was born to do. There's never really, like, I, I don't question that. Everything in my life pointed in that direction. As a child, like, as I, I, I found a tape of me at four years old singing a song um, and writing a song into a tape recorder. I didn't even know I had done that. So this had started before I even knew I started doing it. By the time I was seven, we moved to Pasadena, and my father had passed away. My mother started a daycare center in order to be able to, uh, in our house, in order to be able to take care of her kids while making money. Right. And um, one of the children in the daycare center was a child named Mosese Semenya. Her, his father was Kaifas Semenya, who had written and produced for Miriam Makeba and worked with Hugh Masakela. And his own wife, Letambulu, is considered one of the top five South African singers ever. Mm. So these people lived up the street from us. And his music was mind-blowing. His music was a combination. He worked with Quincy Jones um, mm. in the 70s. He worked with Quincy Jones on the Roots soundtrack. So I was hearing his music as a kid. Uh, and my, my mother had the record. In fact, he bought me my first record player. He reminded me of that when I met him in South Africa not so long ago. <laughs> and um, his music, he had a song that I remember as a kid about South Africa called um, "Play." Uh, they Like to Play with Fire. And hopefully maybe you can find that and play it for folks because it's very indicative of what I do. My song Old Shackles I don't think would have existed if I hadn't heard stuff like they play with like to play with fire. Um, and it was a song about apartheid, you know? They like, to play, they like to play with fire and make believe it's water. You know, don't they know fire will burn them? And he was trying to explain, you know, this whole, this is kettle burning in South Africa and this thing's about to explode, you know? And so I'd be hearing these songs as a kid and I'd hear them sometimes when we'd go swim by his pool because he lived in a really nice house up the street. He was the first black person I'd ever met, black man married to a black woman who was successful, had money. He drove a Peugeot, and that dude walked into any place as himself. <laughs> so I remember being about seven and looking up to my mom and going, Mom, what does he do? Because he just seemed so cool to me. And she was like, he makes music. And I said, okay, but how does he get his money? And she mm -hmm. said, he makes his money doing music, playing the piano. And I remember having the thought in my head, like, oh, she doesn't know what she just started. I'm going <laughs> to be like that guy. 
He's got a pretty wife. He's got a beautiful car. He lives in the best house I know. And he did that for music. And he made money. (laughs) And he's making money. I'm going to be that guy. You know, and he was an African. And all of the things were familiar to me, except for he was just super cool. Mm. Now, in addition to Kaifa Semenya being there, he was training a young man named Leboem. Leboem was dating my sister. They were about, by, by the time, this was more like, he, they, they went to our crush for years. So I knew these people for years. Mm. Leboem came into the picture probably when I was like about 10 or 11. Leboem was 16 years old. He's dating my sister. He's a young musician. He is working in McDonald's. Leboem was the producer of The Lion King. Mm. So I met him when he had nothing and was starting with nothing. And I used to bother him all the time and say, hey, you keep taking my stu- sister to the studio. You're only doing that because she's pretty. I'm the one who can sing. She can <laughs> sing. And he would look at me and say, man, this kid is mad. He talks a lot. This fat kid is hilarious. Um, years later, uh, when I was doing Black Sunshine, we did a show and a South African friend in L.A. said, I'm going to bring someone very special to your show. And, you know, you guys better perform well tonight. So she brought Lebo M to my show to do a show with Stevie Wonder and Hugh Masekela. He, he is, he's huge. Um, so he shows up at our little gig with 80, 90 people there. And he walks up to me at the end of the show and says, hey, you guys are amazing. You can really sing. And I looked at him and I said, I told you I could sing. <laughs> he said, what are, you talking about? what are you talking about? I don't know you. He says, I said, do you remember a girl named Yangu who used to live on Hill Avenue in Pasadena? He said, yeah, from Malawi. She was my girlfriend when she was young. I was young. So do you remember the fat kid that used to come to the car all the time and tell you that he could sing? Yeah, that kid was cheeky, man. He always had something to say. He said, I was that kid. He got, he just couldn't believe it. And he laughed. He said, he laughed. Um, But before this had happened, he had already said, guys, you're amazing. I want you to come play on a show with me. He hadn't described what the show was yet. So he says, well, it's good that you can sing because next week I'm going to have you come play with me for uh, an open for Stevie Wonder. Mm. So a week later, we went from playing in a 100-person club to playing at the Wilton Theater in Los Angeles um, with Stevie Wonder, Hugh Masekela, uh, Joan Baez. Uh, the list of names was insane. Uh, we met Desmond Tutu, Denzel Washington, everybody and their grandmother was at this event in support of South Africa. And all of this, again, tied back to me being little and connected to these people. So in my mind, nothing is an accident. Like All of this was already prepared from when I was four. Mm. No, that's powerful, right? To be able to be, even in the States, to be reflective to say, yes, there are no accidents. And there are certain things as painful as they may have been needed to happen in order for me to proceed forward and and to be where I'm at today. Now, I know for you, like, you know, you're a hip hop head and you also do some scatting. And I think your, your range and your artistry is very broad. Like, so, you know, how did you get into doing jazz and, and right? Because that's sort of like the, the box I don't think it's accurate, but I think that's the box in which your music is housed in. Uh, Absolutely. If if that makes sense. Yeah, good point. My stuff is is jazz influenced. I do not consider myself per se a jazz musician. 
but I do not not consider myself a jazz musician. Let's right. put it that way. First off, Caiaphas was a jazz musician. The musician that I was idolizing uh, as a kid, they all played what we'd call Southern African jazz. It had certain forms and certain sounds to it. The music that's more, uh, you might know through Abdullah Ibrahim. Mm -hmm. um, a good example of that, you know, for people to hear would be Abdullah Ibrahim's song Manningberg, which is Southern African jazz quintessentially. Um, so there were sounds. My mom was also a fan of a lady named Dorothy Masuka, in addition to Miriam Makeba. And Dorothy's sound was a certain form of Southern African jazz. And my mom sang that way in the house. Uh, when she was cleaning up, I'd always say, la, 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 la. She had certain sounds. <laughs> that um, actually, if you listen to my music, I sing like that a lot. Those little high notes I go for yes. that came from hearing my mom singing in that Southern African way. I was going to ask you that. <laughs> yeah, that totally came from that. And then definitely Caiaphas is a huge influence on that. And then just being in Los Angeles. I went to high school at uh, in a school called Blair in Pasadena. Another one of the students was Ivan Zawana. Ivan Zawana was the son of Joe Zawana. Joe Zawana was the uh, leader of the band Weather Report. Um, and Weather Report's a huge jazz band. Uh, and so that, that was happening right there in Pasadena. I ended up getting a job at around 18 at a place called Puba Records. They wanted a black kid that knew hip hop. And they had primarily been a jazz, um, a jazz and rocks uh, record store. The owner wanted a black kid who knew hip hop. So I got hired um, to be the first black kid ever to work at Poobah Records. My job was to pick all of the hip hop that they would sell. And because we lived in LA, that meant I wasn't just picking NWA. I had to have a diversity of things from LA that kids could listen to. So I was, you know, making sure that by 1990-91, I was making sure that there were freestyle fellowship records and far side records and um, I'd already come up on Public Enemy. I was big into the Jungle Brothers in the late um, 80s. That's and so right. I feel, I feel like the Jungle Brothers had a huge influence on me. Talking about Mother Africa. Right. Talking about Father Africa. You know, the red's for the blood and the black's for the man. The green is the color that stands for the land. All of that stuff that the Jungle Brothers were doing in... Um, the late 80s, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm almost 50. I was 18 years old in 1988. So we can literally say at 10 in 1980, I, I had no choice. I grew up with hip hop, right. you know? And so, but once I'm working in the record store, now all of a sudden the owner of the record store had two favorite musicians. They were Sun Ra and Burning Spear. It's old I Jewish love guy. Burning Spear. <laughs> no doubt, you know. There, he was an old Jewish guy who was a DJ on the radio. And I used to check him out and just be like, you know, why does this old Jewish dude, like his, his main music is just Burning Spear and Sun Ra. And oddly enough, now I'm a radio DJ and a lot of my favorite music is Burning Spear and Sun Ra. So, <laughs> Full circle. Yeah, so I really feel like working in the record store affected me deeply. It allowed me, I'd be pulling out records by Eric Dolphy. Um, I'd be, you know, checking out where all the samples came from the public enemy use, were using right. or the Beastie Boys were using. And because I played live music and I was part of a jazz band in high school, I not only studied hip hop from the perspective of wanting to know the rhymes and so forth, I wanted to know where all the music came from. Mm -hmm. And LA's big on that. LA has always been a city where 
uh, hip hop and your hip hop knowledge and knowing old records and having dusty crates full of records, that's just the culture in LA. Right. No, I can imagine. And you know what? And, and the way you were speaking reminds me of an interview that I had seen that Q-Tip had done many, many years ago. But he also talked about just his, I mean, truly being an aficionado of music in general, where yeah. for him just having an ear I mean, because yeah, a lot of a lot of the songs that's that's in his music and in Tribe's music sampled, but it'll be like obscure stuff that you wouldn't even oh, hear yeah. before. But then it's just like, wow, like now as I'm older, I can appreciate, oh yeah, because you're tapping into so many different genres and different places, but it's all music. It's all somehow yeah. connecting to one another. See, I came from L.A., where in L.A., I learned sampling as ancestor worship, you know? Yeah, it's like, okay, well, we're going to do something over this piece by Marvin Gaye, and we're adding to his voice, and we're bringing his voice back out so people can hear this guy again, and, and we can re-embrace what he was doing from a modern perspective. So in a sense... He becomes the musical ancestor, and by using his stuff, you're conjuring him and his energy and that message and trying to move that forward. That's the way I learned it, you know? Now, most people learned it a different way because they didn't learn sampling organically. The first time they heard about sampling, it was on the news because the white media was telling all the older people, salt and pepper and them are stealing your music and getting rich off of your old songs. Now, you could think about it and know damn well salt and pepper and them had no idea when they were sampling, you know, old soul songs that all of a sudden they were going to be selling a billion records and hip hop was going to be the biggest thing on earth. The kids who went to do this were simply going, we didn't get any music lessons, we don't have instruments, but we are going to keep continue this tradition of black music any which way we can. Unfortunately, because we tend to listen to the system's viewpoint of things, there was a huge clash that separated the elders from the young people on hip-hop. That happened more on the East Coast than it did on the West Coast. Whereas if you can think about it, Dr. Dre is a musician. He plays. Now, that was true of a lot of other people on the West Coast, too. I was particularly taken with Freestyle Fellowship and Farside and that circle of artistry. Um, Ava DuVernay comes out of that circle of artistry. There was a corner of hip-hop over there in L.A. that was directly linked to the jazz scene. The jazz musicians would actually sit with us younger hip-hop artists and explain to us, oh, that comes from this, this comes from that. Hey, why don't you all try putting some words to one of these intros to a jazz song? Okay, if you hear the horn going, why don't you go, I can spit up, I can spit up, I can spit around the flows around all the days, turn around, I can spit, you understand? So we were being taught from a young age on the West Coast that this hip hop thing came directly out of the jazz thing. You can hear that now with Kendrick Lamar, but that was already, there was an awareness of that in, the, in LA from like 1989. It's just that, when the industry showed up in L.A., it picked Dr. Dre and gangster music, and then it smashed that other side of the music. You only heard a little bit of that because the far side came out. But we were always understood that jazz and hip-hop were directly related. Now you're hearing it with Kendrick and Kamasi Washington and all that. That's hip now. That was always L.A., just the world didn't know it. So, you know, when I listen to your music especially, 
off of your latest album, Masauko, um, especially when I hear songs like Selassie, yeah. Selassie Chimbere, and, and even parts of um, Africa Calling, too. There, There's like this rhythm that, and, and, I, and I just love sort of African-descended music, right? Because no matter where we are in the world, Everything feels so familiar, sounds so familiar. And cognitively, as a person who is uh, Caribbean, I'm like, oh, that sounds like roots. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, but then, of course, it's just like, yeah, but that also comes from the continent itself, right? Absolutely. And so, I mean, you know, with the movement of African descended people across the globe, you know, there are certain things that we carry that's part of our legacy and the music that we create in our artistry, and then things slightly more based on the materials that are, you know, um, tangible Available. to us. Absolutely. Right? And so we kind of see it, but it all kind of comes together. And I love the fact that your music, it's, it, I started off in the intro that, you know, you're this internationally renowned jazz musician because that's the box. Because it's almost like, I get it with your influences, but it's almost like, where, where do we put this music oh, in the category? And absolutely. it's frustrating, but I listen to it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, but it's this. And I hear that. And it's like, oh, and then you got that falsetto thing going on. And I'm like, why? <laughs> You're getting it completely. And this is where I say, I'm not humble. That's a cocky album. It's a cocky <laughs> album. It's a, the whole point behind the album is I could do a whole bunch of stuff you can't do. <laughs> That's really what I wanted to display given the opportunity because I got my record contract through an herbal, you know, through Guayaki Yerba Mate. They sell mate. They don't do albums for record companies. Mm. Whenever I made my, uh, albums with RCA Records or Sony Music or whatever, there was always, well, it should fit into the genre. Can't we have more songs like Old Shackles? Can't you just kind of stay in the reggae because it'll be more sellable if you just do reggae? Can't you just do the funk? It'll be more. And um, when I was growing up listening to Kaifa Semenya from South Africa, he would do funk, he would do reggae, he would do jazz, he would do soul, he would mix it all. And all that mattered is it ended up being a great song. Mm. And so I was trying to refer back to what I'd heard from Kaifas back in the day and Hugh Masekela, which was like, hey, you can make an album and you can do all kinds of music. Just make sure it comes together to add up to a song someone wants to hit play on. And when the song ends at four minutes, they want to hit play again. I was definitely showing off. I want you to understand that. Like, <laughs> I'm rhyming on one track. I'm singing ballads on another track. I'm doing acapella falsetto on another track on another track i'm singing in an african language on another track i'm singing in a different african language um and so i, I wanted someone to go dang this dude kind of does everything now not everybody's gonna get that because most people are used to the packages and the genres and you know all of that but there's somebody out there who knows man reggae reggae when it first came out they didn't have a name for it so no one could listen to it because it didn't fit into a box now we have a name for it and the whole world listens to it. I always, I've always wanted to create a music where someone said, I don't know what to call that. That's not good to me. When you can call something rock or funk or jazz or soul or what R&B or whatever, you really haven't achieved anything to me. That's just me. That's just my opinion. When Bob Marley and them came on the scene, they made you go, I need a name for that new music. And then right. reggae shows up. When Fela comes on the scene, you can't just go, well, that's funk or that's jazz. It has to be called Afrobeat. It's a new form of music. 
That's what I'm after. I'm after the point where someone says, hey, and, and you know, I've always called my music world soul. And that doesn't mean world music soul. It means just music from the soul of the world. Well, do you separate your parents' legacy from your own? Because no, in many ways, in, ta in talking about it just now, where you're just like, you know, this is what you're putting forth into the world. Is there some intentionality around that choice? I, I, am, I am my father's and my mother's son. If you, when it comes to the lyrical content and the spiritual content of the album, all of it is centered in forwarding their story. It's kind of like I told you before, in the dream, everything around you that's floating around the dream ends up inside the dream. Mm -hmm. So when you see, let's say, Selassie and Chippenbere, what that's about is I went to a place in Malawi where there's Masuko Chippenbere is one of the biggest highways in the country. And so at the bottom of Masuko Chippenbere Highway, it intersects with Holly Selassie Road. So I looked up on this sign in Africa and I see my own name, which is my father's name, right there next to Holly Selassie's name, which I've grown up inside of loving reggae like this is ja rastafari i'm standing in africa at a corner where my name and holly selassie's name are intersected and that's because of the great work my father did this is a miracle to me and mm. so in the lyrics out in the corner of Chip Mbede and Holly Selassie up in Malawi, a part of my destiny was spelled out to me through a message from my ancestry. Mm. And I think that's sort of like, I, I think in many ways that story is an, one of many, I'm sure, pivotal moments that affirmed that you're doing the thing that you set out and that you're supposed to be doing, right? Can you imagine that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It just, it just, I'm sitting there like, you're at the corner of Masauko and Chippenbere Highway and Holly Selassie Road, and uh, there's one more third road that wise off to it somewhere else, and that's Glenn John's Road. <laughs> My middle name is Glenn. I was named after that third person because that was actually the white man who helped my father escape from Kamuzubanda. Mm. So not only is my father's name there and Holly Selassie's name is there, my middle name is on the other side so that my whole name is up there. <laughs> That's bananas to me. What the universe did to put all that together just seemed insane to me. It had to be a song. This is the end of part one of my conversation with internationally renowned jazz musician, Masauko Chippenberry. Stay tuned for the next episode, part two, where Masauko talks about the road of his journey and where he lands today on Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness.